Well, it's my privilege to introduce today's speaker, and one of my favorite things about this is I don't need to introduce him anymore. He's just Pastor Sean from next door, so please uh, welcome Pastor Sean Ford. We've been working together for, what, 18 months? Yeah, I think so. That's wild. So I've, we've seen some stuff together, and so I can <laughs> tell you right now, uh, he's, the, he's the real deal. <laughs> seen some stuff together? Yeah, that's true. Um... Is it okay if I move this? I don't want to mess you up. Cool. Thank you. All right. So this time I brought a Bible because I didn't last time. And I'm going to read from it. Um, Jesse uh, will have it on the screen, I think. Right? Yeah. We're cool there. Um, we're continuing in that series uh, that... John started, which is learning to wait. And the passage that I selected for the week um, is Genesis 16. Um, and let me just make a quick comment about it because uh, in recognition of the topic, it's um, ultimately I'm going to be talking about Hagar. And Hagar is really, it's a story that's a difficult story. Um, and I just want to be sensitive to your story and the things that you've had to journey with in, in your life because uh, ultimately, to faithfully talk about the text, I have to talk about uh, abuse. And uh, I, I, again, I just want to be sensitive to your hearts and to your minds and to give you space as I'm reading it, if that's going to be overwhelming for you or whatever it may be, is that you have space to just awkwardly moonwalk or whatever you do. <laughs> To, to find space, but just kind of give you that disclaimer. Um, so I'm going to read Hagar's story. Um, it is chapter 16, verses 1 through 16. Um, and you can follow along, close your eyes, however you want to receive the word this morning. Uh, now Sarai, Abram's wife, had borne him no children, but she had an Egyptian slave named Hagar. So she said to Abram, the Lord has kept me from having children. Go sleep with my slave. Perhaps I can build a family through her. Abram agreed to what Sarai said. So after Abram had been living in Canaan 10 years, Sarai, his wife, took her Egyptian slave, Hagar, and gave her to her husband to be his wife. He slept with Hagar, and she conceived. And when she knew she was pregnant, she began to despise her mistress, then Sarai said to Abram, you are responsible for the wrong I am suffering. I put my slave in your arms, and now that she knows she is pregnant, she despises me. May the Lord judge between you and me. Your slave is in your hands, Abram said. Do with her whatever you think best. Then Sarai mistreated Hagar, so she fled from her. The angel of the Lord found Hagar near a spring in the desert. It was the spring that is beside the road to Shur. And he said, Hagar, slave of Sarai, where have you come from and where are you going? I'm running away from my mistress, Sarai, she answered. Then the angel of the Lord told her, go back to your mistress and submit to her. The angel added, I will increase your descendants so much that they will be too numerous to count. And then the angel, or excuse me, the angel of the Lord also said to her, you are now pregnant and you will give birth to a son. You shall name him Ishmael, 
for the Lord has heard of your misery. He will be a wild donkey of a man. His hand will be against everyone and everyone's hand against him. And he will live in hostility toward all his brothers. She gave this name to the Lord who spoke to her. You are the God who sees me. For she said, I have now seen the one who sees me. That is why the well was called Bir Lahai Roi. It is still there between Kadesh and Bered. So Hagar bore Abram a son, and Abram gave the name Ishmael to the son she had born. Abram was 86 years old when Hagar bore him, bore him Ishmael. Um, this morning, as we've been talking, I mean, we're week one of learning to wait. Uh, I wanted to start with a question for you to kind of just check in with yourself. And the question is, who are you in your waiting? I'll ask that question again. Who are you in your waiting? Um, The reason why that question is important is I know that last week, Pastor John uh, did a really, I think, masterful job of setting the scene for this idea of waiting and that we're people that wait with anticipation, is that we don't just wait to wait, is that we ultimately are waiting on someone, something, and who is that is? Who are you waiting on? The Lord. And so when we say that we're waiting on the Lord, we're trying to bring our whole selves before God because God brings himself towards us. And we say, who am I in this? Who Am I in the waiting? And that's an important question is because God doesn't bifurcate. He doesn't separate that. He doesn't segment us into little boxes. He receives us as our whole selves, and so we can feel confident that we can approach him with our whole selves. So I ask you this morning, who are you in your waiting? Um, One of the, I guess, ethos or ethics or desires of my heart as a pastor is, is that I could pastor with vulnerability. Um, that I could be a person that there's not a whole lot of mystique, is what you see is what you get. You don't have to question the authenticity because you might hear me, well, I won't say cuss, but I won't do that this morning. Um, but I'm going to be myself because I live so much of my Christian journey, not myself. And I think that especially when you're a vocational minister that gets paid, there's a lot of pressure to be something other than you are. And a while back ago, I just said, I don't have the space or capacity to do that. If you've ever spent time with my three children, you'll understand why. They're amazing, but they require a lot because I want them to live fully in ways that I didn't. And so that's where I devote a lot of my time and energy and emotion. And uh, so that what you see is what you get. And in that... um, I said in uh, FCC that I pulled an audible. It was 9.15. I was going a completely different direction. And I'm really grateful for the direction that I felt God saying to go. Um, Because this morning, when I answer the question, who I am in waiting, my answer to you is that I'm anxious in my waiting. Um, That's the thing that I probably struggle with more than anything else in my life is anxiety. Anxiety. And I thought, you know what, if I'm going to be bold enough to ask you the question and dare you to say who you are before God in your waiting, that perhaps 
I could reciprocate in vulnerability by exposing who I am before God as I'm weak. And so I wanted to share with you a little of my story about anxiety because I didn't know that I actually struggled with anxiety. I mean, all the signs were there, but I was oblivious to it. And I have no idea why nobody around me was like, maybe you struggle with anxiety. <laughs> it's kind of annoying, actually. Um, but I didn't know that I was uh, struggling through it because, like, maybe you can relate to this is there's this thing in our culture and society that really highly values to pull yourself up by your bootstraps and just get through it. And I think when you go through drug treatment, uh, which I went through, is that you actually become highly skilled at learning how to get through really difficult things. And so I had become really skilled at just pushing through. So I had this, really, this lifetime of anxiety that I had no idea I was carrying, and I was just pushing through and pushing through and pushing through until I hit a rock bottom that was unprovoked, and I couldn't push through it anymore. Like, no matter how hard I tried, it didn't change anything. It just was. And I was sitting in the ashes of my life, and I couldn't pull my boots up anymore. I was barely wearing flip-flops at that point. I felt naked and exposed, and I was struggling. And it got so bad that I um, couldn't sleep, and I couldn't eat, and I was on like two three days at this point, and I was a, just a really hot mess. And I had someone in my life who's kind of like a mom to me in California, and um, she's so sweet and encouraging, and she suggested I go to urgent care. Okay, she was really worried about me, and my parents were far away. They were in, uh, in another state, and so they couldn't take care of me, and so she took care of me, and she said, go to an urgent care. So I went to an urgent care, and I'm sitting as we do in the urgent care, and it took a lot for me to get there in the first place because there's an act of humility in doing that, right? Like asking for help. That kind of sucks sometimes to ask for help, but I needed to. And so I'm sitting there in the urgent care, and I'm waiting, and I don't like it, and then they take you back, and then you get to wait some more. I don't like that. I just want to get this over with, and I want this problem to be resolved so that I can keep going so I can sleep and I can eat, and maybe my life won't be normal, but at least it will feel familiar. And um, I, dang, I wasn't going to cry. I thought I got it out the first. <sighs> um, I was sitting there, you know, as one does, and there's that, I don't know if you have this awkward moment, you're like, do I sit on the chair or the table? You know, it's like that chair table, Dan. I chose the, the table, so I'm sitting on the table, and I'm facing the door, and I'm feeling very exposed, even though I'm fully clothed, and the doctor comes in, and I'm wearing a Star Wars shirt, and other than saying hi to me, she says to me, oh, you like Star Wars? I love Star Wars, too. And I tell you, oddly enough, that's exactly what I needed to hear in that moment. I didn't need to hear her say, why are you here today? I needed her to say to me, I see you. And so we talked about Star Wars for a minute, and, but I'm like an anxious mess. And so we didn't talk about it for long, and, and then I proceeded to explain to her what I was going through. And uh, when I tell you that she had the kindest, most gentle eyes, I really mean it. And I think hopefully at least once in your life you've had that experience where somebody has looked you in the eye and you're like, you're good people. Like, I know you're good people. And she was good people. 
And she looked me in the eye and she hung on every single one of my words and she didn't rush me as I wept. And I needed to weep. That was part of it, right? Like I just needed somebody to sit with me and cry. And she was, what, what is so fantastic to me, she was so professional too. Man, she was amazing. And one of the ways that she was so professional is that obviously it would have been inappropriate for her to hug me. And I could see, I need to connect with you because you're hurting. And she was so sensitive to what my heart needed. And she said to me, um, can I check your heart? How's your heart? Dang, I wasn't going to. Um, but she said, how's your heart? She wasn't like, can I take your pulse or I'm going to check your temperature? Or can I check your ears? She said, how's your heart? Can I check your heart? And I loved that question. I feel like that's such a, a ministry-oriented question. How's your heart? So I, she checked my heart, and she was so tender and kind. She didn't push in too hard. She was just there, and she listened, and she didn't rush it. And then she went to my pack, and she checked. And it was the exact touch that my heart needed. It was the hug that she wanted to give me that she couldn't professionally give. And she shared that space with me. And she proceeded then to help me with my issue, which was anxiety, and she broke it down for me. And she said, this is what you're carrying, and this is why, and I'm going to help you. I'm going to give you some medication for it so that way you can get to your primary care, and then they will take care of you from there. And I left that office as anxious as I walked into that office, but I felt so unbelievably seen and known. And she probably has, like, she just had to go to her next patient. And I don't know her name, Dr. So-and-so in Redmond, but she changed my life in that moment because ultimately I knew in that moment that God saw me. And while I definitely needed medication then and I definitely need medication now, I can forever look back at that moment in time and say, God sees me. So I'm talking about Hagar this morning. And I think as somebody that has an unbelievable amount of power and privilege, it's really challenging for me to speak about a story like Hagar, who there couldn't be somebody uh, more opposite to who I am, socially, uh, relationally, uh, positionally. And she's, a, she's had a very different experience for me. And I am so indebted to her story because I genuinely believe that if there's anybody uh, as we're looking to Christ and who he is as one who waits perfectly, is that Hagar is a tangible, touchable example of somebody that knows how to wait. And if we're asking ourselves, what does it mean to wait? And maybe it's hard to abide, as I know uh, we're going to hear with when Pastor Trey is preaching about abiding, right? You're still doing that. Um, or when when John is talking about Sabbath rest, is that maybe sometimes we just need a model of what it looks like to wait. And that's what I find in Hagar's story beyond just her character and the beauty of her heart. Uh, so I want to share some of that this morning. And I know that there's a time element at all, and I hope that you'll be patient and wait with me in this. Um, I will say that these things that I've come to uncover in Hagar's story. I can't take credit for them. 
Um, it's really through the work of people in the margins and indigenous scholars that have really looked at Hagar's from, story from a different way. Uh, Lindsay Treadway is a theologian that uh, wrote a lot about specifically Genesis 16 and Genesis 21, and she writes it from a Native American perspective. So it's a very uh, particular viewpoint that she's bringing. One of my friends uh, who's a, uh, a scholar, his name is Robert Monson, he's written a lot on this. He wrote his dissertation on Hagar and specifically about being a black male scholar and liberation theology and womanist theology. So there's all of these different perspectives that uh, I had the opportunity to look at that I probably wouldn't have otherwise seen because how many of you, if you put it on the scale, how many times have you heard Hagar's story in comparison to Abraham's story? You know what I mean? So that's what I'm familiar with, and that's what I feel comfortable with. So then to take a deep dive into Hagar's story requires a different viewpoint than I might have otherwise had. So I just want to put those names out there and not take credit for their hard work. Um, but I have been the beneficiary, and I hope that you all will be the beneficiary this morning. So, um, so who is Hagar? Uh, well, I read her story. Um, we know that she's an Egyptian slave, and she was likely very young at the moment that uh, we encounter her in the text. We don't know. There's speculation. Maybe she was a teenager. But the idea, uh, the things that we do know about Hagar's story is that uh, she was away from home. She was away from her people. And no, there's no like, interpretation where we can say, oh, she's like a maidservant. Or, no, she was a slave. Just a slave. We don't have to like skirt over that or look at it in a different way. Is Hagar was a slave, and she was treated as a slave. She was related to as a slave. She was a possession of people. She didn't have a sense of being apart from the being of someone else. She woke up a slave, and she went to sleep a slave. And that means that her experience of navigating the world is ultimately very different than my experience. I've never been given as a possession. But Hagar, in this story, was given as a possession. We know Genesis 15 is that Abram, at the time, he receives this covenant promises. How many of you are familiar with the covenant promises? That, so that way I can gauge if I need to share more about it. But okay, we're mostly familiar with it. But the idea is that Abram, who doesn't have any kids, is going to have a crazy amount of de descendants to the point where it's not countable. Yet, we find in Genesis 16, he doesn't have a single child. And I'm assuming in their marital relationship that Abram is talking to Sarai, and he's sharing the promises that God has given to them as a couple. Because it's not just Abram that's receiving the promises, it's Sarai too. She's waiting. And she's been waiting a really long time. So we encounter them, and she's thinking something that is very normative in a Near Eastern society. If I am barren and unable to have a child, then I will look to a surrogate to be the person that carries my child. So some people debate, some scholars say that she was in sin, that she just wasn't patient enough. And other scholars say, no, she wasn't in sin. She just thought the way that she would have descendants is through somebody else's womb, but they would be hers because that's normative. I don't know. There's good arguments for both. But the reality is, in the middle of all of that is Hagar with zero autonomy, given as a possession to fulfill somebody else's promise. 
Can you imagine? I have a hard time wrapping my mind around what that life would look like, what it would feel like. But that was her reality. And so here you have this moment where Hagar, as a slave of Sarai, is given to Abram as a possession. And then, whoa, Scripture refers to her as a wife. So now you go from slave, and now you're this wife of a patriarch. You're moving up in this world. And then on top of that, because we know that in Near Eastern society, childbearing is such an important thing, she's pregnant. So that's an added sort of, she's really, she went from seemingly only useful for her slavery to now a wife that's bearing a child. So she's moved statuses. And as a response to that, and there's different ways of engaging with how she responded. Um, verse 4 says, when she knew she was pregnant, the Hagar, she began to despise her mistress. How many of you, if you were to put yourself into the posture of Hagar, would have despised Sarah? Right. Seems like a pretty normal thing. And, and now she has the status to help to support that attitude. I'm Abram's wife. And she's like, nah, I'm not going out like that. And so she goes, Sarah, I mean, goes to Abram and says, your slave is treating me this way. What are you going to do about it? It's like very mafia, isn't it? Like, what are you going to do about it? Was that good? Yeah, thank you. It'd be in the Sopranos uh, reboot. So uh, here is this, we have this sacred patriarch, Abram. We're like, yes, he's going to respond well. He's going to nail it. You got this. And he says, that's your slave. That's not my problem. That's your problem. <laughs> you deal with her how you want to. So in, in literally a sentence, She's subjugated to slavery once again. She's not seen as a wife. She's seen as a possession again. And she's reminded that the child that she's bearing isn't even her own child. It will always and forever be in the eyes of the people Sarah's child because she's just a surrogate. She's just a warm body. And so when she's reduced to slavery status again, she's mistreated. And as I think, and I'm so grateful for Hagar's response, what does she do? She flees. She's not going to put up with it. So she runs away. If you had any questions about if Hagar was in sin by running away, I would love for you to look at how God responds to her in the wilderness. Because that was one of my questions. Is it right for her to run away? Yeah, I think so. And it's supported by how God deals with, uh, with Hagar in this place of wilderness, I wanted you to notice some things uh, alongside of me. Is um, number one, uh, how many of you have walked around in like the desert? Desert. You've walked around in the desert, <laughs> my, my man. Me too. How many of you have come across cold, fresh springs in the middle of the desert? That's pretty. Oh, thanks. <laughs> of course. Um, would you say that's a normative experience in the desert? No. 
mean, otherwise it would be an oasis. No, it's a desert. Already we're seeing as she's going into the wilderness, she's finding the very thing to sustain her in her life as she flees, which is fresh water. Um, and then furthermore, um, who are some people that you can think of that have been called by name by God in the desert? I can think of two people. Moses and Abraham. And I can think of a third person too, Hagar. In the middle of the desert, called by name, in a moment of theophany where God makes himself known to her in full representation, full manifestation, and calls her Hagar, an Egyptian slave in the middle of the desert, knows her name. I would love to stop there just so you could like sit in that throughout the week, is that Scripture elevates Hagar's experience to Moses' and Abraham's experience. Whoa. So uh, furthermore, and I think this is a reflection of intimacy, is that uh, I love God's curiosity. Curiosity reflects intimacy and relationship to me. So whenever I see God, rather than presuming what's going on, he invites it in, them in with the question, hey, where are you going? Where did you come from? Where are you going? Curiosity reflects relationship, a desire to be, to answer, to respond. Rather than dictating the terms, it's an openness by God. And again, if we're looking at Hagar's character, one of the things that is so astonishing to me is she is 100% honest. She doesn't lie. I had to ask myself, if I was in her situation, would I have lied? I'm pretty sure I would have. Even though it was God, I would have been like, I don't know, I'm just for a walk, you know? Just out and about drinking some water. She's like, no, I was mistreated, so I fled. She feels confident in her decision. Uh, one of the more challenging pieces um, in this text is verse 9, and I'll read it. Then the angel of the Lord told her, go back to your mistress and submit to her. And I've, I've really struggled with that. Like, why, why would God, knowing um, the abuse that she was under and her situation, why would God send her back into that? And frankly, there's, there's nothing in the text that necessarily explains why, and there's nothing that I've encountered from scholars that have studied this have said a convincing reason for why. Uh, when I say it, what has given me peace, and I say this like very lightly in the sense of peace, is that if I know that God sees her and knows what she needs, then my assumption is, is that he cares enough about her that he wouldn't leave her alone, away from her people in a country that's foreign to her to navigate pregnancy and the birth of a child by herself. So I don't look at it as much as a condemnation, but more as a protection. And the reason why I see it as a protection is because of the promises that come after that statement, which is, and I'll read them to you. The angel added, I will increase your descendants so much that they will be too numerous to count. Does that f blessing feel familiar? Because it's the same exact blessing that Abraham received in the desert. And can you imagine an Egyptian slave to receive the same blessing as a person that enslaved her? And can you imagine hearing your descendants rather than their descendants? God is making some massive proclamations 
but she knows in the midst of it is that she has to go back to her abusers. And then on top of that, beyond just saying, I'm going to increase your descendants, Ishmael, or excuse me, Hagar, uh, I want you to name your child Ishmael because I've heard you and I've seen you. And names have such a significant meaning in Scripture, and Ishmael's name is one that says God hears. Uh, verse 12 um, is, a, is a fun one. Um, how many of you would like to be known as a wild donkey? You know what I mean? Like, okay. Um, he'll be known as a, a wild donkey of a man, Ishmael will be. How are we doing on time? Are you guys tired of listening to me yet? Can I nerd out with you in translation? I was never going to do this at FCC, and I 100% want to do it here. Is that okay with you? Okay, cool, 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 cool. Um, verse 12, one of my favorite things about this is the idea that what if verse 12 is being mistranslated? And I think that there's actually some pretty solid arguments for why verse 12 is being mistranslated. I want to start with why I think it's being mistranslated. If you are an enslaved person, how many of you have kind of heard the story about how you can entrap an elephant into enslavement? Is At a young age, you put a chain around its leg. And so by the time that it's an adult, it doesn't even need a change to know that it's enslaved, that it's been, it's been reared into slavery. And so this idea that a slave, wild donkey, does wild donkey mean enslaved or free? Absolutely free. It is the antithesis of enslavement. You will roam. You will be free. You will be wild. You get to do what you want. You're not beholden to the ways of your masters. You are wild and free. So if that is true, and I'm assuming that Hagar would interpret it that way, she'd be like, oh, snap, he's going to be a wild donkey. This is amazing. What if he, his hand won't be against everyone, everyone's hand against him, and he will live in hostility towards all his brothers? Um, I think that there is a reason why it's translated, and it has a lot to do with the Islamic faith, and it perpetuates some ideas around that. But I want to give you a scholarly alternative view to verse 12. I'll read the verse to you, and then I'll read you Lindsay Treadway's commentary on verse 12. So I'm going to read the verse. He will be a wild donkey of a man. His hand will be against everyone, and everyone's hand against him, and he will live in hostility toward all his brothers. This is what uh, Lindsay Treadway said. The common understanding that Ishmael's hand will be against everyone and their hands against him is based on a rare translation of a tiny preposition. A much simpler translation befitting the blessing context, blessing context being referred to as your descendants will be as numerous, right? So that's the blessing context, would be as follows. Ishmael's hand will be with all, and he will dwell alongside all his kinsmen, notably not at odds with all his kin. The same construction is used in Genesis 25, 18, when Ishmael settles in Shur. He settled down alongside all of his people slash kin. It is the exact same vocabulary that translators render at odds with all his kin. 
Von Rad notes that this is a good, solid blessing and that Ishmael will be a real Bedouin. Many of you familiar with the Bedouin lifestyle? Are they known for being in one place? They're known for traversing. They're known for being nomadic. So what exegetes have determined as difficult to translate is actually really simple Hebrew. Ishmael will dwell in the wilderness as a free man in his hand with everyone, or even more appropriately, all things in harmony with his land and his people. So good. It's, it's literally the opposite of Hagar's story. You move from an, an enslaved person that has no story of your own, no people and no place, to people and place and things and jurisdiction and power and authority and provision. It is the opposite of Hagar's story. And it's first promised to Hagar, not Ishmael. Um, then something really cool happens. Thank you for letting me do that aside. I hope it was as interesting to you as it was to me. Verse 13, she gave this name to the Lord who spoke to her. You are the God who sees me. For she said, I have now seen the one who sees me. Um, Old Testament scholar John Golden Gay refers to Hagar as the first theologian that we encounter in the Old Testament the first theologian that we encounter in the Old Testament. Super cool fact, Hagar is the only person in the Old Testament that has ever given a name to God. So you have somebody that's the first theologian. She's an Egyptian slave who is the first ever and will be the only ever in the Old Testament to name God. Pretty cool fact. And so I sit with that. It's the opposite of Hagar's experience, as we've probably heard it as an accessory to Abraham and Sarah's story. But she's really being elevated in the text. Nobody else has given name to God. God gives them his name, but she gives God a name. And what is the name that she gives him, which is Elroy, or if you watch Jetson's Elroy, it's exactly the same. And it means God who sees me could have chosen any other name. And she says God who sees me after she's told she's going to be enslaved again, that she's going to be abused again, that she's going to be mistreated again, that the child that she's bearing, she has to assume it's her child. But the reality of it is that how are they going to see Ishmael? God who sees me. So she's faithful. She goes back and she waits. She didn't know that it was going to come to pass, as God says. And if you read uh, Genesis 21, I'm super grateful for you sitting me, with me in this. Uh, I'll just give you the rundown. She goes back. She has Ishmael. Abraham, uh, by this point, calls the child Ishmael. And we fast forward Sarah has a child, Isaac, and Isaac is at a point where he's weaned. He's no longer taking the milk from, that's a weird way to say it, taking the milk. <laughs> Delete that. 
Um, nursing, just nursing. Uh, so he's no longer nursing. And Isaac and Ishmael are playing. And there's different interpretations on what they were doing when they were playing. My favorite expression of when they were playing is that Ishmael was Isaacing, which is another way of saying, even though he knew that he was technically the firstborn and the son of a slave, is that he was playing as though he was the firstborn and that he was the one that was to deserve all of the different patriarchal statuses that would be ascribed to him as the firstborn. And Sarah saw that and she was like, heck no. Get your slave and this child and get out of here. So she's telling Abraham, send him away. Another amazing opportunity to, for Abraham to be this godly patriarch that we often hear about. And his response is, let me get him some water. And so that's what he does. He gets them some water, and he sends them on their way. And uh, Hagar finds herself once again in the desert. Um, What's interesting is she's carrying the child, and we know that he was 14 years old, so it makes me wonder the health of Ishmael in that. Uh, I have a really long 11-year-old, and I got about four minutes in me, and that's it. So I can't even imagine she's been rejected. She's not fleeing on her own will. She's being sent away, effectively, to die. She's lost any position in authority, any sort of confidence and, and protection and provision. It is the opposite of God's promise. And so she lays her son down by a tree because she can't even bear the thought of being close to her son and watching him die. Yet again, the opposite of God's promises. And then Scripture says this. Verse 17, this is Genesis 21. God heard the boy crying. That's a sermon in and of itself. God heard the boy crying. And the angel of God called to Hagar from heaven and said to her, What is the matter, Hagar? Do not be afraid. God has heard the boy crying as he lies there, Lift the boy up and take him by the hand, for I will make him into a great nation. And then God opened her eyes, and she saw a well of water. So she went and filled the skin with water and gave the boy a drink. Here's another sermon. God was with the boy as he grew up. And why is that another sermon? Because it's exactly how Scripture describes God being with Abraham. God was with Ishmael. And instead of living in slavery, they live in freedom in the desert to roam and to be. And he became an archer. Weird aside, but okay. Unless, and it literally just occurred to me, would you want to arm people that you enslave? So the fact that he's an archer and he has a weapon is actually kind of a big deal if you think about it. Anyway, uh, while he was living in the desert of Paran, his mother got a wife for him from Egypt. 
what's super amazing to me about that um, is that in the Near Eastern society, it's the responsibility of the patriarch to find a spouse for their child. And instead of Abraham being the one, Hagar is elevated to matriarch status. And she's the one that's recorded of finding a son for her, uh, a wife for her son who will be a patriarch. Literally, role reversal from enslaved Egyptian without a home and a people to expansive land beyond imagination as a matriarch that can go into the place that she once lived and be seen as worthy to bring home a bride for her son. So when we consider waiting, and I asked you at the beginning, who are you in your waiting? I can confidently say to you, my anxiety is the worst. And I require stories like Hagar's story to help me see what it looks like, even in the midst of my anxiety, to have a reimagined trajectory wrought out of waiting. I don't know today what you all are carrying, and I don't imagine that when Hagar was first enslaved or when she was first in the desert or even as she was hearing the promises that God would create descendants that were innumerable, that she ever could have imagined that it would turn out the way that it did. I don't know about you, but I got a pretty decent imagination. I could never in a million years come up with that. And so it makes me wonder when John is inviting us into this story of waiting, what transformative aspects of our lives are yearning for something well beyond our imagination? And literally, all we have to do is just wait. It's wild to think about. You all have been super kind and generous, and I know I've talked for a really long time, um, and you've been super attentive. Let me just pray, and then I know um, we go to the table. Do you want me to do that, John, or do you want to do it? Cool. Okay, let me pray. Um, God, uh, it's really amazing that uh, you give us Hagar's story that we get to hold, and I pray that, um, that it would help us to reimagine what waiting can look like, and who you are, because I think that's the real key here, is yes, I asked who we are in waiting, but the point is we get to see in the midst of that who you are, is that you are the God who sees. And just as you saw Hagar, and just as you saw Ishmael, is that you see every single person in this room and every person that will listen, and that there is something that we can uh, draw from that in a sense of deep and abiding confidence. And so... Lord, prepare our hearts for the table. This is another tangible act that you gave us to let us know that you see us. Um, it is something that we can hold in our hand and put in our mouth and ingest to say that we are known and loved by you. So prepare our hearts this morning, whatever things that we're carrying, whatever confessions that we might need to make, um, so that way we would be unhindered and wild and free like wild donkeys, I guess to come to the table and explore the expansive love that you offer us. Let me pray this in your name, Jesus. Amen. So I know that you have a rhythm of the table to my left and to my right. And
as you feel your heart prepared, uh, partake in the goodness of God with his broken body and his shed blood for us.